city's been so quiet since the boys in green went back. But it only took them three months to put Porton on the map. Yes, the stadium's never heard the sound of cheers in all its years. When the players come on the field, the thousands singing in their ears. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's give all of the boys a cheer for the Portland Timbers will be here. Today we have another original timber and someone who's been contributing to the game in many capacities in the U.S. for a very long time. I'll more formally introduce him in a moment, but I first want to welcome Chris Dangerfield. Chris, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Billy. Thanks for including me in your podcast. Anybody that knows me knows I like to talk a lot, and I especially like to talk about the 75 summer. That's for sure. Oh, fantastic. Well, then uh, we were in the right place today. Um, I think so, yeah, so, yes. Yeah, yeah. So let me do a, a more formal introduction, as I'd like to do, because I do want people to get a sense of sort of who I'm talking to and why they should listen to you instead of me. So, um, so Chris was born in Birmingham, England, and played rugby until the age of 14. After switching to soccer, Chris played for the Wolverhampton Wanderers until, I'm uh, sorry, and has three England youth caps. In 1975, he was loaned to new NASL side Portland Timbers, where he played two seasons and scored his first NASL goal at the age of 19. Later that season, he played with the Timbers in the 1975 Soccer Bowl. After the 76 season, Chris had a return spell in England before coming back to the U.S. to continue his playing career. He played for several teams in NASL lore, Las Vegas Quicksilvers, Team Hawaii, Tulsa Roughnecks, California Surf, and Los Angeles Aztecs. With the exception of a few indoor seasons in Minnesota with the Strikers, Chris's playing career anchored in the Bay Area with the San Jose and Golden Bay Earthquakes. His final playing season came uh, with the San Jose Oaks. In 1992, the Oaks became the last amateur team to win what's now called the Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup Championship, with Chris being the only person to win it as a player coach. Chris holds a National A license and coached in U.S. Soccer's Youth Development Academy with the Anza Soccer Club. Off the field, Chris has worked as a color analyst covering the San Jose Earthquakes. In 2018, Chris was inducted into the Earthquakes Hall of Fame. Uh, we missed something, didn't we? I think that just about covers it, Billy. I think the uh, the line to use there is, I had more clubs than Tiger Woods. That's the one I usually <laughs> like to use. That's perfect, but that's not atypical of somebody who was here trying to build the game at that time. In, in many cases, had no choice because some of those teams didn't exist after, you know, you had nothing to do with it. They just weren't there. Yeah, that was my career in, in the 10 years I played in the North American Soccer League and and related leagues, you know, it was one of those situations where, unfortunately, teams folded around me. I mean, I can look at that list and say that, you know, Vegas folded, Hawaii folded, the California Surf folded, the Aztecs folded, the San Jose Earthquakes folded, and the Minnesota Strikers actually folded as well. So sometimes, you know, you can't do anything about it and you have to move on. And um, I had quickly sort of become comfortable being in america i enjoyed the lifestyle i enjoyed especially my time in portland um and then later in my career and life in san jose and um you know so it became part of the game just to keep moving on from one to the other yeah so um i mean you've had a as i said a prolific soccer career but you started with rugby was your 
sport of choice up until about 14. Is that right? And um, how did soccer come about? And then did you think, um, do you think that playing one sport helped you eventually as you became a professional? I mean, sorry, playing more than one sport. Well, you know, the whole thing with rugby is the education system that goes on in England. Um, you know, so I was, uh, you, you take an examination at the age of uh, 11, 11 plus, And so you either go to a grammar school, which is a higher level education, or you go to high school. If you go to grammar, then you, you sort of play what they call the gentleman sports, which are cricket and rugby. And so I ended up going to a school that played rugby. And because I was a decent athlete, the, the sports teacher wanted me to play rugby. So that's what I did for the most part. And so I didn't really get a chance to go through that sort of, as they would in America, high school soccer aspect of things. But I quickly sort of morphed that into playing rugby on a Saturday morning. And then I found an under-18 team to play with on a Saturday afternoon for soccer. And then I'd play in a men's league on a Sunday morning. And ironically, it was the men's league I was playing one day with my brother that I was actually, as they, as they always say, scouted by a guy in a flat cap on a rainy day in the middle of a muddy field in, in Birmingham, England. And the guy said to me, who are you and why are you not playing for Birmingham school boys? And I said, because I play rugby. <laughs> and everything, everything sort of changed on that day. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, I was representing Birmingham against uh, Durham up in Newcastle and that kind of stuff. And a couple of weeks later, I've got these offers to go and play professional soccer and you know everybody's got a story and that's sort of mine and i do think that the the ability to play more than one sport and to get exposed to those things uh, the rugby taught me a lot about discipline it taught me a lot about teams and team building and that sort of team chemistry and i was also a pretty good golfer when i was young so i had a choice of potentially playing golf as well back in the day uh, but, you know, football or soccer was always my number one passion. Hey, this is this is not on the questions I sent you, but I'm curious. You mentioned uh, rugby. I'm, I, technically, is the field vision uh, any similar to soccer for a player? Um, or is it completely different? Like a sport like baseball, for example, is completely different field vision than soccer. Well, you know, I played rugby union, so the game was... Well, you were basically nonstop running, so there was that aspect of it, and um, and the ability to run and move with the ball and without the ball. I was start initially a scrum half because I was so small, then a fly half, and I ended up playing fullback, which is that sort of position at the back where you're doing all the kicks, you're taking all the extra points, as they would say in America, those type of things. And with rugby, it's different because if you score in the corner, you come straight back, and you have to sort of hit it on the angle. So I was able to actually take those extra points, right-footed and left-footed, which is kind of unique. And um, there's a possibility I could have got, I was asked to go and play for a local club called Mosley. Uh, but I, once again, um, realistically, I knew what I wanted to do and I wanted to play football. That's great. So you transitioned to playing, I read, uh, and I'm kind of paraphrasing slash quoting here, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays. So you started training, right, twice a week, it sounded like. What were those... Is that true, first of all, I guess? And then what was that training like as you sort of transitioned to, uh, I'll say, proper soccer training? Yeah, so that was because the Wolves came after me, um, and I was a Wolves supporter when I was a kid, so I was excited to play for the Wolves. And uh, I've I've since traded that in and gone to Aston Villa, just for the record. Um, But um, at that particular time, I was asked to go and train with the youth team, and obviously I was at school, 
My parents wanted me to stay at school to, to take what was called the A-levels, the advanced levels in education back in those days to the age of uh, 18. Um, and the way to get around that was for one of their scouts. I think it was Tony Penman, uh, but I may be wrong with that. He used to come and pick me up on a Tuesday and a Thursday and drive me to Wolverhampton from Birmingham. It's about a 45-minute drive. And I would train with the U-team. Uh, and then I started playing with them on a Saturday morning as well. And, you know, over a short period, really, you know, I drank the Gatorade and uh, there's only one thing I wanted to do, and that was play for the Wolves. And so I had to coerce my parents into letting me leave school at the age of 17. Amazing. And then, so you did play with Wolves uh, in the youth system, correct? And then you came to Portland with four other Wolves players. Um, So I'm curious. uh, Yeah, go ahead, and then I'll follow you know, it's like I think it's the same story with a lot of young players at, at, in those times, and that is, when, I think when I signed for the Wolves, there were 44 professionals on the books, and I was a 17-year-old one. And so, in those days, once again, you know, the, the coach, the head coach, Bill McGarry, would put the teams up on a Friday afternoon, and there would be 11 plus one sub, 11 plus one sub in the reserve. So there's only 24 players getting the game on a Saturday, and there's 44 professionals. So it's difficult to break in. And I was playing, as you mentioned, I was playing for England Youth, uh, which in my mind made me one of the best 11 players in England right. <laughs> at a youth level, right? But maybe it probably wasn't the case, but I thought I thought I was. And so I'm knocking on the manager's door going, why am I not playing? I was a bit of a pain in his ass, to be honest, I think. So uh, when the opportunity came and, and Vic was doing his scouting around the Birmingham area, because Victor, he didn't have a lot of time to put a team together. And so he went to his knowledge base, which was you know Aston Villa, Birmingham City, Wolverhampton, Paul Vale in the case of Tommy McLaren, local Birmingham teams or Midlands teams. And he, he put together a team. And uh, obviously he came to watch some games in the reserves uh, or he spoke to McGarry. And it was Peter, Barry, Jimmy, Donald and, and myself that were chosen to come to play for the Portland Timbers. And so what was that like when you first arrived? I mean, you were probably, well, you were 19 years old, I think, at the time when you came over. I'm curious what it was like to come to Portland. And also, was that your first time playing on uh, turf? And it was bad turf at that, but was that your first time playing? And how was that an, an adjustment? Well, there wasn't much adjustment weather-wise because we left rain and we ended up in rain in Portland. <laughs> right. right? So, <laughs> and, and it rained. I mean, it rained for the first two or three weeks we were in Portland. And... Uh, you know, you go through those sort of uh, steps of trying to transition to a new area, a new place, a new team. Uh, but straight from the start, it, it was a fantastic group of guys, and that made life easier. Um, from my perspective, all I wanted to do was play. And uh, I was waiting for the opportunity p- to play. And so, um, you know, when training came along, I'd run, 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 and fight, fight, fight. And hopefully, at some point, you impress Vic enough to put you in the in the lineup, um, when it comes to the playing surfaces, that was just one of the many challenges there were playing in America. And uh, I've seen that over my many, many years of playing in the game here. And then also, you know, covering the game here is that uh, the, the ability of athletes to be having to not only travel and go through different time zones, but also different playing surfaces. And then also, um, the different weather conditions. And, you know, when we were 75, I remember going to 
for example, St. Louis, and it was pouring with rain on a grass field, and the field ended up smelling of manure. It was a terrible field, and we won that. And then we got on the train, on the on the on the bus. We got train got changed on the bus going to the airport because it was an overtime game in St. Louis. And then we flew to Miami, where the weather was like 100 degrees in in the middle, of, and we played. I think we kicked off at noon, and so. You know, you have to deal with these things as an athlete. It's it's a difficult place to play, America. It's a difficult league, as the major league soccer is now. Right. So there's there's two directions I want to go. Because on one hand, you touched on the idea of travel and what it was like and quick turnarounds. And that's actually my, my next question after this. But you mentioned Vic Crow. And as I've talked to people, Willie Anderson um, and, and Mick Hoban, have both mentioned not only Vic, but Leo Crowther. I know Leo encouraged Mick to do things outside of the game um, and educate himself and get his coaching licenses. And, and for Willie, he mentioned Vic really got the relationship with the fans and what it meant to be a professional and how to connect as you're just building something. And that left an impression on him. What do you remember about Vic Crow and Leo Crowther? Well, I knew the names because I was from the Birmingham area and they both heavily involved with Aston Villa. So I knew who they were. Um, you know, Vic was, had a reputation of being a tough player and being a tough coach. I didn't find him that way, but maybe that's because he gave me an opportunity to play in the end. And I relished that. And I thought the world of Vic Rowe. Um, and Leo was, you know, he's his sidekick. I mean, he was the guy that would be sometimes a nice guy. So Vic could be the mean guy. Um, you know, it's, all coaches do that type of scenario with players, but from my perspective, he was somebody that got it. Uh, he, as Mick pointed out, I heard Mick's podcast uh, the other day as well that you did, Billy, and he pointed out that you know Vic had been to Atlanta, and he knew what was expected of him as a coach because he's come to a country where he had to not only do a good job with the players and put up a, a team out that was going to be competitive, but he also had to sell the game. And that was ingrained in every one of us Starting with Nick, who was, you know, he was the leader and he was the one that was the first player and he was the one that was the benchmark for us all to do what he did off the game, off the field as well. And to be honest with you, we all took to it like a, a duck to water, as they say, and we enjoyed it because he got us out. We're new to the area. We got to meet people. We got to get to know the area. We were able to benefit from it. So I remember many times going to clinics in the area as a single player at the age of 19, and we go and do some kind of clinic somewhere, and we'd meet a family. And the next thing we know is we're going to their house for dinner. Yeah. Well, that was, that was perfect for a young single guy from England, right? So we go and have a barbecue on the Sunday, meet the family again, because that's what, that's what the people were like in Portland, the fans were like. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think in a lot of these questions I've asked, uh, even though we've gotten to that idea, it didn't matter what job was too big or too small. It just the job needed to be done and everyone was on board to, to build the game and reach out and make connections. I've never asked about the other direction, what it can do for a player. I mean, you're 19 years old. You're like 4,500 miles from home. Uh, having that connect, connection as a human is, is important as well. It does go the other way. Oh, absolutely. And there was the four of us. So there's Barry, myself, Jimmy, and Donald. Uh, Donald and I were best buddies. We used to travel all the time from Birmingham to Wolverhampton on a daily basis uh, to go to uh, Wolves uh, for our job at the time. 
so we we were roommates. Jimmy and Barry were the other roommates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we, we ended up, honestly, because we had two apartments and we were so homesick for the first couple of weeks that we asked Vic if we could all move in together. So we all moved oh. in together. And then about a month later, when it was all going on, and we have an after-game party. We're having a fantastic time. We asked if we could move out, and Vic said, "No, no, 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 no. You're not doing that. We had to stay." You know, the four of us lived in two in one apartment. That's great. You, you're now now you're jarring my memory because I played USL in Louisiana one summer, and it was the first time they had a team, a USL team, is in Lafayette, Louisiana, and exactly that thing happened. We met a family, uh, and they had us over, and they made a uh, gumbo. Um, and it just uh, it made all the difference being there. It started with the with the um, investors and the you know the Gilbertsons and the likes of those people that when we arrived they would you know you get to your apartment somehow magically you had a car to use um, somehow magically the f- the fridge was full of food um, and so you know they made sure you had what you needed to get by and then. You you would like to think that you were then on your own, but you weren't really because, as I say, every week there was an opportunity, if you wanted to do it, to meet other people, and they were more than happy to meet you. It went both ways. Um, yes, we were doing a fantastic job off the field to to make sure we promoted the game, and that's something that I took with me from <laughs> from team to team to team. But like it really was, you know, we took it every on board and. You met other people that were playing in other teams. Obviously, I ended it up in San Jose. But I still see the guys that were in the 74 and 75, 76 San Jose Earthquakes teams. They live in this area. And those names are legendary in this area because of the work they did to set the platform up for the other players that came later. And that was the same thing that we did in 75 and 76. Yeah, so... Uh, I know I, I sent you an order of questions I want to follow, but I now that we're on this topic, I think it makes sense to jump ahead a bit if you're okay. Sure. Um, and so the NASL Timbers, like you said, they're in the community building the game, meeting fans. I'm curious about any of your other teams that you played for. Were any of the other clubs like that, or was that unique to Portland or a few franchises? And then that sort of as a follow-up, because of all that, that sort of community building and connecting that happened in the NASL years, even though there was a, a, a a very open period of lack of a national professional soccer league in the eighties and nineties, I'll say before major league soccer sort of became what it was. Uh, in spite of that major league soccer is here and it's not going anywhere. And it's sort of, I think benefiting from the generation before in the NASL that did exactly that. So all that's to ask, is there room for, for like a major league soccer team? How would they go about being as active in, in the community and building those connections um, even though the landscape's completely different, it is different. I, I think that it was unique. Uh, it's hard to continue uh, with that same mentality when you're bringing in, in some respects, more established players that have coming over now at this stage of Major League Soccer. Um, after saying that, I'm still involved with the Earthquakes here locally, and you know those players are out there doing their community work on a regular basis. Not to the level that the Timbers did, but you have to understand in 75, it literally was that nobody knew what this game was. And um, it was almost part of our job description. It was, you know, show up to training, run all day, because Vic will tell you to run, run, run. It would be have a, have a quick shower, 
Um, you're trained on turf, so you'd have all these rug burns on the side of your leg. Uh, Ron Culp, who was the best trainer in the world, would find you and spray this red stuff on it. It stings so bad, it was unbelievable. And then you go out and do a clinic. And if you're fortunate, um, you meet somebody who would buy you dinner. I loved it. That's fantastic. So, so now I'll go back to the follow-up when you mentioned uh, the game in St. Louis and the quick travel and turnaround. This next question is a mouthful, and there's a lot to unpack there, but it's somewhat related to that. It's related to your first goal, and, of course, uh, there's a tiger involved. But let me just uh, go through this narrative so I can set the context for people listening. You're in the San Jose Earthquakes Hall of Fame, uh, and I will talk about that. But first, I want to mention this other connection you have with San Jose. Your first goal as a Portland Timber came June 28, 1975, in San Jose. You're playing against San Jose. And there's a lot of context I want to add there. The players, the Timbers, excuse me, played the night before in L.A. So not only did you play the night before in another town, but that match went to overtime as well. And you picked up the game-winning assist to Peter Witt that night. But then in less than 24 hours, your team's back in San Jose. Now, to add to this, the Timbers had been to San Jose once before, and in that was the time where a fan, uh, at least one instance of a fan, came out of the stands and, and punched a Timbers player. And I don't know if that's the match where Mick Hoban was, was also punched and he and Tony Betts tried to chase the fan up a ramp. Um, so there's a lot of context to this situation. Um, but that specific night on the, in the backside of a back-to-back game, which is insane for me to think of professionals playing back-to-back, but to be honest, I was – we were doing that in, in the early 90s, right, in the USL. Uh, before the match even starts, Crazy George comes out with a Bengal tiger onto the field. And the tiger at one point takes, takes one of the Timbers balls and runs into the goal. And I think he, he nearly takes a piece out of you. So I don't know if there's much more of a, of a way you can have a 19-year-old a getting his professional, first professional goal with a team than that. But but what can you tell me about that sort of, uh, I'd say, 24-hour period, that two-match road sweep in California where you beat L.A. and San Jose, got the game-winning assist the night before, uh, started, got your first Timbers goal that day, and, of course, like a lot of people are probably interested in, there was a Tiger on the field. Well, from a personal perspective, number one, I just wanted to play. And so I'm thinking, okay, here's an opportunity for me to get a start and so to be to impress upon the coaching staff and also my teammates that I, I can do a job this year if I'm called upon, I'm ready to go. And so that was the most important thing for me was to run, run, run as much as I could to impress Vic and anybody else who was watching um, and work hard, which is the Vic Crow way. And um, both fields were fairly similar. Um, in AIA, we played at a college venue, can't think what it was now, but you know that was very much the, the similar to Spartan Stadium, which had a wall around it where San Jose State played. It was a narrow field. Um, and so you, I was able to get involved in the game and I was able to close things down and tackle and do all the things that I knew I had to do to try and get some more playing time for the Timbers. Um, and it was, um, it was a big opportunity for me. And one of the things... One of the main reasons I came to, in 75 when given the opportunity from the Wolves is because I, I felt like I deserved to play more in Wolverhampton and I wasn't given the opportunity. And all I wanted to do really over the summer 
was get some serious playing time. I didn't realize it was going to change my life the way that it did, and it has. Um, you know, my love affair with uh, USA in general, and certainly the Portland Timbers area at that point. Um, but it was one of those moments that I just felt like I had to grab it with both hands. Um, I knew, and I know now from being involved with this club in San Jose so many years that Crazy George is Crazy George. I mean, you know, he, he does some weird stuff, man. I mean, that one, he, you know, they came down on a, um, it was one of those quads. There was a quad come from the local safari park, and yeah, there was a guy who had a Bengal tiger, and he was on a chain. And I'm looking at this tiger, which is probably about four foot high. It's a big tiger. And I believe what they were trying to do with it was they had trained it to, with its paws, tap the ball down the field and take it into the goal. But once um, the tiger was announced, the crowd, which is big, I mean, it was 18,000, I believe, sold out in San Jose in those days. Um, they've all cheered. The, the, the tiger's freaked out, and it's, it's sat down, and it's not going to move. So now we got the trainer dragging the tiger down the field. Uh, the, the tiger is unfortunately, um, what's the right word, but he's basically crapping all over the field. <laughs> That's yeah. going down as well, right? And, yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm there just kicking the ball into, into Brownie's hands, and I turn around, and there's a tiger behind me. But I've seen weirder things in San Jose. Honestly, there's one time that Peter Bridgewater had a guy come out in the box and he blew himself up at the halfway line at halftime. Captain Dynamite, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which was all good until we started the second half and there was a massive dip in the in the middle of the field where the guy had blown himself up. <laughs> and we used to see these things all over the place. In Dallas, I remember playing in Dallas with the Timbers and they had a monkey that would an organ grinder monkey that if they scored, it would go up the post along the crossbar and down the other side of the penalty, um, uh, the other crossbar, sorry, the other post. And that was all part of their shtick. Uh, I was playing for Las Vegas at the time in that game, and we, they scored in the last minute. Alan Hinton scored a header. And I remember that the, the monkey came down, and as it landed, Trevor Hockey just volleyed the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of NASL memories. It was a fantastic yeah. league. It was so much fun. Um, yeah, it's always fantastic fun to go and play, as you would if you were lucky, in, you know, in New York in front of the big crowds and that kind of stuff against those players. But at the same time, there was something just wonderfully magnificent about the way that the Timbers' season finished in '75 and bringing in bleachers around the field and the, the photographs I've still got of, of, of Civic then Civic Stadium with people on the houses and buildings are, just so they could actually get a glimpse of this game. You know, it gives you goosebumps right now. Yeah, that's amazing because, I mean, I can't possibly cover everything you just said. <laughs> but, but that specifically is amazing because uh, a few months earlier, that did, in fact, the team didn't even exist. They missed the draft that season because they were so late in coming together. To to get to that point that fast is it, it's unheard of. Yeah, I mean, it's um, uh, it was it, it was a I, don't, I can't really add much more to that. I mean, it was just a, a wonderful time, and uh, and it, from our perspective, I think everybody that was in that seventy five and and the, from then on. 
just getting the opportunity to be part of this new league and see it grow. You've got to understand as well that, you know, we're traveling, we're flying, we're going, to new, we're going to New York and we're going to Miami and we're going to see places that are just, um, you know, things you would see on TV. Uh, it, it, was a, it, it was a magical time. Great. And it seems there's a, a, a pattern I'm hearing from all, so far I've interviewed quite a few people in the NASL days, excuse me, even Clive Toy. Um, and everyone has sort of the same work hard, be a good person, go about your business. And then the other things, you know, they just happen. Right? If you're doing the right thing, the right things happen. Um, and so, so sort of with that, you had two seasons here in Portland, 75 and 76, which included the inaugural season. Um, the magical Tony Betts playoff goal against Seattle, which is pretty iconic. Um, and then the unique opportunity to, to, like we've said, participate in a club from the ground up. What do you remember most about playing for Portland and building the game here? The fact that um, everybody um, was more than willing and happy and then thrilled and then just uh, – I guess in some respects, um, they were grateful for the opportunity uh, to build a game in, in the city as we did. I think the relationship with the fans was such a special one. And that was led by Vic. Um, you know, we would do things like we'd go uh, as part of our training. We'd run around the stadium and high five everybody waiting for tickets. And that was a Vic thing. I mean, you know, what a good idea that is. Um, you know, I remember one time it was Valentine's Day. We came from the top of the stadium with roses, handing them out to all the the ladies that were in the and girls that were in the in the stands at that particular time. Not a good idea, by the way, because people would grab them out of your hands, and so we go on the field with our fingers bleeding from the thorns. Oh, right. You know, yes. I mean, who thought that one up? Um, right. But um, yeah, I mean, once again, it's it, it all comes down to your personal career as well at times and from my perspective what I found out is I was given an opportunity to play um, I was asked to come back the next year and play again with more of a guarantee that okay you now you're part of the first team now you're going to be starting or you're going to be one of the players we're thinking to start on a regular basis and so from my perspective with things just being in a bit of a gray area in England and being so competitive um, and I, between you and I, I don't think I was the favorite of the coach in the, in the at Wolverhampton at the time, Bill McGarry was a tough, tough man. I just wanted a chance to play. And so um, that's the big thing I got from me from a career perspective is I think this is uh, a great place to live. This is a great place for you to get playing time. This is a great place for you to try and build a career in life. And I was enjoying it. I wanted to come back. That's great. And so, you know, I want to ask about who you played with because, you, you know, again, you came over at a rather young age. You're, you're just wanting to play the game and make a career. And at the same time, you've played with Johan Croy for two years in L.A. And that team was coached by Reinitz Michaels, which is, you know, the heart of what we know as total football. You also uh, played with the Dutch great Wim Serbier. Uh, you played with Eusebio in Las Vegas, George Best in San Jose, and that's not all of them, but those are some pretty big names, not counting the people like Pele, Canalia, Beckenbauer, who you may have played against from other teams. Can you put the, a relationship like that, can you put it and their effect on you as a young player into in words? 
Well, probably not, but I'll try. Um, <laughs> it's it's just really um, it's unbelievable, really. It's it's all part of just time and of things. Obviously, um, the Croix situation was one where I had been traded to the Aztecs uh, for Wolfgang Schonholz on a we went back and forth between California Surf, where I'd been the year before. I'd gone to the Aztecs. Uh, and there was no mention of Renus coming in. There was no mention of anything like that. It's just, okay, it's another new club for you. And then a few weeks later, you know, they're announcing Johan Cruyff has arrived and Renus Nichols has taken the job. And then they're signing Vince Subia. They're bringing in Michael Carey. They're bringing in players that are, like, you know, serious players. And um, that particular opportunity was one, once again, that I had to... You know, you come to a club thinking, okay, they want me and I'm going to start. And then they start bringing in Cruyff. <laughs> right. And so, you know, so you've got to like now battle your way back into that starting lineup, which is all part of the game, right? But um, that was a wonderful opportunity. And, I, you know, and, and same with um, going to Vegas, which is when I left the Timbers, unfortunately. Um, 76 happened. It wasn't a great year for the Timbers in 76. Brian Tyler, um, you know, I, I remember the conversation just before I get on the plane. I want you to come back next year. I want you to play for me. Okay, Brian, no problem. By the time I landed, I've been traded. I mean, it was <laughs> it's just I was gone. I was I was traded to Las Vegas. Um, and so, you know, I was hesitant about that. But when I talked to the coach, we got Eusebio, we got Tony, we got Umberto, who all played for Portugal, they all played uh, for uh, Benfica against Manchester United in the 68 uh, European Cup final. Um, fantastic players. I did a two-year, um, two years with Cruyff, and uh, we did a tour of Europe where we played against Paris Saint-Germain, and we played against uh, Chelsea, we played against Birmingham City. Uh, Big Clyde Best and Graham Day came on that tour with us as well. Um, and, um, you know, these are... Across the board, I guess what I'm trying to get to here is that they're all not only legends and fantastic footballers, but they're all great people. Cruyff would stay behind at training with the young players, help you with shooting, help you with the game. He would sit down, have a cup of coffee with you for as long as you wanted to talk about the game, as long as at the end you agreed that he was right. <laughs> right. Because he was always right. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that seems like a fair... Fair deal. Why not? And yeah. Vinsubia is just a sweetheart, the best guy you've ever met in your life. And, you know, I got to meet George when I was playing down in Los Angeles and um, going in and out of there. We became friends. And when the time came up where, once again, the Aztecs you know, ended up folding, um, the San Jose earthquakes were still going on. And I, I thought I was going to go and play indoor in Pittsburgh. I'd met with them. They'd offered me a three-year contract to go and play indoor soccer with Pittsburgh. I thought I was going to go there. But George talked to the owner in San Jose, which I, I didn't know, and uh, they paid the $75,000 to get me to come to San Jose, and I became an earthquake. Well, that was uh, – yeah, I'm just going to go with that because I want to jump ahead. That's something I was going to ask you is how, did, how you became – uh, how you ended up in San Jose because in 1982 it seemed to be aside from a little stint in Minnesota indoors that was where you ended up for good yeah I mean I, I we played here in 75 as you mentioned a couple of times and we had the final here in 75 um, 
I'd become really good friends with Nick Nicholas, who played in the 75 team, who was from San Jose. John Smiley, um, 76 team, put for the Timbers, both from San Jose. Um, I would come back and spend time with those guys in San Jose. I liked it. I think it was a great area. You know, the sun was shining. It was, um, they had a, a really good fan base, and it was an exciting place to play. Um, so when... When I got the phone call and, you know, Bestia put a good word in for me and, and I came to San Jose, I was I was quite happy with it, other than the fact that they had picked up my contract as it was, which was significantly less than I was going to get paid in Pittsburgh. But we figured that out in the end. So I ended up signing a three-year deal with the new owner took over, Carl Berg. And, um, you know, and Carl was serious about it. He started building the team. He brought in some fantastic players and uh, the 83 team we had in San Jose with the likes of Steve Jungle, Stan Telecki, Godfrey Ingram, um, and others, uh, Bill Irwin, for exactly, Fernando Clavillo. I mean, fantastic team, and we probably should have won it, but we lost in the semifinal to Toronto. And that, yeah, so, it's gonna, I mean, first of all, given the choice, and I'm going to offend some people, I'd take San Jose over Pittsburgh. Yeah, but you know, it was the indoor thing was going. That was rocketing yeah. one way, and the NASL was limping through. Oh, there's another team gone. There's another team gone. Um, I mean, it grew. It grew overnight. It grew too fast, and um, the cosmos dominated. And um, it was not the right. It was not the right way to build a league because um, you can see now with Major League Soccer they've. They've taken a different approach. Um, everybody can beat anybody in any given day. It got to a point, really, where it was just a bunch of guys trying to beat the Cosmos. Right. Um, so I want to talk about, uh, again, and just for a conversation with you, I'm moving around some of the questions that seem to make sense. What was yeah. your first experience like with the Earthquakes? Because that was your first, I guess, proper indoor league, right? Yeah, I enjoyed it. They they did the NASL sort of indoor thing for a while where you'd end up with one guy playing up front and he wouldn't come back and then the other four would be behind. And uh, we did that in Los Angeles and I I happened to be fortunately be the guy up front and I'd score a bunch <laughs> of goals. And so that would be one thing that sort of, I guess, put me on the radar of some of these indoor teams. Um, uh-huh. I, yeah, I mean, indoor soccer was... A lot of fun, and it was tremendous fun when you go to places like uh, Cleveland and St. Louis and Baltimore and Wichita, where I wouldn't say it's fun to go to those places, but at the end of the day, the stadiums were rocking, and uh, the game was uh, electrifying to play in. A lot of fun. and uh, But good players play, whether it's indoor and outdoor. I mean, for example, I mean, George, I'm playing here with San Jose, and Bestie's like, uh, he hasn't shown up for training much that period and uh, but we he decided to want a game of indoor soccer so we put him in the team for the first game or it could have been the first game or one of those games and uh, he hadn't even trained with us indoor he hadn't even touched the ball and we didn't really have an indoor facility that was any note for a training facility but in the first game we played he scored four five goals and got five assists i mean good players good players can play anywhere I want to ask about a, a, a maybe good player, but someone who's um, who you played against. I mentioned that you, you you're the only person that I know of to have won the Open Cup as a player coach, but you might be the only person to have your pedigree and also 
has played a match with Led Zeppelin's Robert Plant. Yeah. Do you remember that? So, and and what kind of player was he? So Robert Plant was is a massive Walls fan, and he tried a couple of times to buy the club, and um, uh, there was a sort of um, social bar part of the training facility at the Wolves, and I remember having conversations with him a couple of times later on when I'd just gone to watch the team play and he would be in there. But the playing part of it was being on the contract in, in America, I would go back in the off-season. Um, I wasn't allowed to sign a new... Pro- it, it, it was too much aggravation to go through the whole process of getting released and then be able to sign a new contract with a team in England for like three months. So sometimes I would play in um, the leagues that were one step below. For example, one year I want to play for Telford United for a few games. Uh, Sir Jeff Hurst was the coach who I knew from really? Seattle. Yeah. Wow. And so, you know, I... It was late in their season, so I would just play games like a Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, and they'd pay you for doing that, and you would make that in addition to your contract, you know, whether it was with the Timbers or whatever. Also, because I was playing in Los Angeles at the time, and but I'm originally from Birmingham, they always used to call me the, you know, the Los Angeles kid type of thing. So I was asked to go and play in this charity team for a local, there was a kids TV program that was one of the time called Tiz Was. And Tiz Was had a charity team. And so it was all charity based. And so they would have various celebrities play on the Tiz Was team. Uh, Ron Atkinson used to play as well. He was a famous coach for Manny Knight and everybody else. Ron would play and a couple of guys like that. But we'd have Robert Plant. uh, We'd have Alan Clark from the Hollies sometimes. Um, different people. Uh, Robert Plant was a left winger, not a bad player at all. I mean, he was, he'd, you know, he could he could play and uh, he enjoyed his football. Uh, but it was, there was all these different celebrities. We had a, there was a guy who was the uh, on on Tiswas. His name was Terry Thomas, I think it was, and he was the fishing expert on Tiswas. And he would go in goal with a massive fishing net, so he would catch the ball in the fishing net. So it wasn't a serious game, right? But it yeah. was a lot of fun, and it was for charity. There was a, com- there was a comedian from Birmingham called Jasper Carrot. He used to play in it as well. And it, so we'd, we'd raise money. We'd raise money for a lot of good causes by doing that stuff. And people like Robert Plant were a big part of that. That's great. Um, I, when you talk about the fishing net, I was just trying to incorporate the monkey in my head from, from Dallas. <laughs> Catch the monkey in the net. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Uh, so uh, I do want to talk about your journey post Portland uh, because I think it's it's kind of a typical one in the sense that you went to Las Vegas, a one-year team that eventually became the Soccers. You were in one-year team, Team Hawaii, um, who were previously San Antonio Thunder for two years, one year in Hawaii, and then became the Tulsa Roughnecks. You played for the California Surf, who were formerly the St. Louis Stars. The LA Aztecs you played for in their last year as a team. And this is typical of a lot of guys moving around and, and even a lot of guys with families. Uh, what's it like trying to move around and find a career in a game that, that seems like it's got this tenuous stability? Yeah. At one point I was sponsored by Mayflower moving firm. I think yeah. <laughs> that was a big sponsor. Yeah. It, it was difficult. Um, you know, um, when I went to Las Vegas, as I say, you know, Brian Tyler they, and, the, and the Timbers, 
released me, I guess, or whatever it was going to be. They did a deal with, with Las Vegas. I wasn't sure about going there. And Don Paul, actually, uh, of Timbers fame, had called me also to go to Hawaii, but I didn't want to, I, did, I didn't fancy playing for the coach they had in Hawaii at the time, so I chose Las Vegas. And um, the Vegas thing, you know, started off fantastic. Uh, we beat the Cosmos in the first game of the season, one nothing. Uh, we went to six wins and one loss. And then about a few months later, we were six wins and six losses. And it quickly became like circus, circus there in Vegas. And um, I got the call again from Hawaii. They changed the coaching staff. Don Paul came to the apartment and talked to me. And you can't, you're not going to say no to Don Paul twice. Let me say that much. So <laughs> I went to Hawaii. Um, crazy. I mean, these, I mean, these are the things that happened in the North American Soccer League. Um, our local the closest game was Los Angeles or Seattle. It was never, ever going to work. Um, there was times when we would be on the field and with the cheerleaders and the players and, the, co- and the, the coaches and the referees, there was more people on the field than there was in the stands. Um, this is the way it was. Um, so that whole thing was never going to work. Um, I went back to England, as I mentioned, doing that same thing. I got a phone call to meet with the new coach of the, uh, I was going to be offered to go and play for uh, a team away, uh, who was a legendary person uh, by the name of Bill Folks. And Bill was a Manchester United legend. He was one of the guys that pulled people out of the wreckage in 1958 when the plane crashed. I mean, a fantastic guy. Um, I sat down with Bill and he said, I've got some good news and bad news. I said, what's that? He said, well, the good news is I want you to play for me next year. I said, okay, that sounds great, Bill. He said, what's the bad news? He said, we've moved the team to Tulsa from Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, that one, I didn't like it in Tulsa. Went to, uh, got my agents, went to California Surf, more, definitely more my style. Ended up the Aztecs and then ended up in San Jose. So it all worked out in the end. And... Um, uh, all those clubs, uh, especially getting towards the end, the Aztecs and also the earthquakes have been very good to me. Um, and um, when I reflect upon that, yes, there were some sketchy times where I had to move around just to survive more than else uh, as the league uh, was getting thinner and thinner with opportunities. Um, but, hey, I got through it. Yeah, and so, so that's interesting because a lot of players now even now, I'd say, don't make lifetime money playing soccer, right? So it's still, it's more possible, I think, now, even with all the opportunities and even in the lower divisions. Uh, and so I'm kind of curious as a professional soccer player, if someone's going on that path now and you've done a lot of, you've, co- you've worked, I guess what we'd say in this country, all along the pyramid. Um, what advice would you give to a young player wanting to sort of start in on this path from the U.S.? Well, things have changed so dramatically, haven't they, with the, with the the um, outlook now for young players playing the sport in America, um, you know, with the, the, the with the development academies that came up through that I was part of with the Deanza Force, but now with the uh, MLS academies with MLS Next and MLS Two, um, I think that the, the opportunities are there for you if you are good enough uh, to not only get everything taken care of and but also to to have excellent coaching on excellent facilities and there's real opportunities for you as, as a young American player. 
Um, you know, we, we can go all the way back to 75. And unfortunately, the reality of it was then that, you know, the Timbers in 75 didn't have to play an American player. You had to have a couple in your squad, but they didn't have to play on the field. And it's evolved from that scenario to, you know, we had to have two players on the field. Then you have to have more players on the field. And, um, you know, I have to take my hat off to the attitudes of some of those young American players who just play for the love of it. I mentioned Nick Nicholas, but there's other ones that, you know, just were part of the Timbers success over the years that had to had to be part of the squad just hoping to get an opportunity i think the opportunity and the platform now is so much greater for the young american player that it was nice to be able to grow up and be able to play various sports and i think that that's an important part of the younger years uh, as an athlete you get to play you know go and run track, you know, in America, you can play some baseball, you can play some basketball, whatever you want to do. But unfortunately, the reality of it is, is that if you, soccer is a sport that I think you have to commit to it early. Um, you look at the greatest players in the sport. I mean, Pelé, there's one. Messi, there's another. Messi left home in Argentina, went to Barcelona. I don't know, was he 12 or something like that? Because he knew he had to make that commitment. Pelé was playing in the World Cup final at the age of 15 or 16. You know, so it's one of those unique sports that if you're good enough, you're old enough. And so my, I think my advice of 10 years ago would have been play as many sports as you can. My advice to a young soccer player now is if the opportunity is there, go for it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, yeah, I mean, I appreciate you saying that because I think that's something, uh, you know, I, I feel like we're, you said 10 years ago, you'd have different ad- advice. I feel like there's a, a level of, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say, is there's, there's, a, there's sort of a, it's a philosophy change that's relatively new, I think, in, a, in sort of larger discussions. So I'm glad you said that. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Chris, I, that kind of takes me to, to, I've got these three sort of, trivial things, like trivia type things I want to, one is that when you were coaching at DNs in the Development Academy, I'm pretty sure we coached against each other because I was with FC Portland. So you were Robbie Bob? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I wish I'd, I mean, had I known then. um, I assume I assume assume DNs are one. Probably. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so, so the other thing that's sort of Trivial. I'm going to go backwards. We mentioned not just Team Hawaii, but uh, one thing they do have, other than being, you know, a one-year team, is that's the place the first NASL 35-yard shootout took place. Was at a home game against the Seattle Sounders, and so uh, this was, I think, before you joined the team because it was early in the season and you're probably still in Las Vegas. Uh, but Harry Redknapp missed. He was the first one to take a, an in-game one, and he missed um, his shootout. And then a guy named Brian Tinian took his uh, for Team Hawaii and scored. So he's the first person to make an in-game or end-of-game 35-yard shootout. That's really leading me into asking you about the shootout itself and what your strategy was when it came to those. I love the shootout. And it's never going to happen because um, the, the the game has to adhere to FIFA rules and FIFA specification, specifications. But... I would love to see the 35-yard line um, a penalty shootout. 
as part of the the game in America. I, I think it's a very American thing. It's the only thing I've heard of that I think you can incorporate into the game in some capacity, and it would be fun for the fans. You know, you can't make the goals bigger, you can't make the ball smaller, you can't do all these things. So uh, that was one thing I thought takes a lot of skill. Um, it takes uh, it gets the gets the fans off their feet. Um, it's it's a unique aspect to it. I've got a fantastic story about that, by the way. So we're in Los Angeles, and Cruyff has arrived, and we're playing Rochester. He's just got off the plane. He's been there like I don't know ten hours, and we're doing a training session before the game. And at the end of it, Nikos wants us to go through some thirty-five yard to show him what's going on. So some of us take a 35-yard shootout. Goalkeepers come out, the normal thing, trying to take him on, trying to bend it past him. And um, Cruyff goes, okay. And he puts the ball down, and the first thing he does is flick it up in the air. So the ball's up in the air, now he's running after it, and the goalkeeper starts to come out and freezes, and he just takes it on his knee and just chips it over the goalkeeper on the volley. And nobody's ever seen that. Nobody even thought about that. It wasn't like he'd seen it before. He'd watched us take these things, and he's decided that's the way to do it. And being him, he's turned around and said, but it's normal. It's normal. That's the way it is. (laughs) And after that, other people started doing it. But we were sitting there amazed that not one of us had even thought about trying to do it that way. And it froze the goalkeeper completely. That's amazing. So, so what what was your your strategy? Uh, me, uh, I would. It was all about getting a good first touch. If you go and you have a good first touch, then you got time to run after it, get your head up, have a look where the goalkeeper is. Obviously, if he hasn't come out, then you can take it another touch and you can smash it past him. If he's come, then you have to adjust the angle a little bit. I like to take it a little bit to the right and then hit a ball that would start off way outside the post, the left-hand side post for the goalkeeper, and be able to bend in around and use the bend, and that was my sort of... And I was pretty good at it, to be honest. That's great. That was, so I, I took a few in the in the 90s when Major League Soccer started doing them. The USL divisions were doing them as well. And um, You know, we were still playing sometimes on football fields, uh, right? So the, the lines would be burned into the field, and that would add an extra challenge to that first touch you were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. When he starts to bobble a little bit, yeah, really. Yeah. So, so then the other thing is I mentioned earlier. I mean, you have an A license, national A license in coaching. In 1992, you won the Open Cup while coaching uh, then amateur side San Jose Oaks. What was that season like? I mean, it's a special season to make an Open Cup run um, as a player coach or in, in any capacity. Well, you know, it, it was what was available at the time. Um, we had a local sponsor, which was the Britannia Arms of Andy Hewitt. And, you know, he put the money up. None of us got paid. Um, it was an amateur team. And so it, there was nothing else available for these players, including myself, at that particular time. Um, the league had folded. Um, it didn't really get going again until the World Cup came in 94. And the league started, Major League Soccer started in 96. So this was 92. Um, I believe the year before, which would have been either 90 or 91, uh, the Santa Clara Broncos locally had got to the NCAA final against Virginia. Um, and there were some fantastic players on that team. Um, Jeff Beicher, Paul Bravo, uh, Eric Yamamoto, um, uh, Paul Holliker, 
um, uh, Stevie Robertson, all, all local guys that played at a high level, but they had nowhere else to go and play anymore uh, because the league wasn't available to them. Um, so this was the best that we, we could offer in the area if you, wanted to, if you didn't want to go to Europe and try and play or whatever. And so we put a local team together. Uh, we trained uh, a couple of nights a week. Um, it was kind of crazy because we, we became the only thing to do at a high level in the area. So we would have a training session on a Tuesday. Uh, we'd have Julie Fowdy. We'd have Laurie Fair. Brandy Chastain would come out. Precky would show up. We used to get Larry Arnoff and Urbe from the Sharks to come and train with us. Um, you know, we had anybody who wanted a good kick around on the Tuesday and Thursday would come and train with us. And it was a lot of fun. Um, our team was very good. Um, we, I took a local, a lot of local young players who used to play for the Earthquakes back in the late 80s as well that were great local amateur players. I took um, uh, a couple of guys that were over here on you know, dodgy visas that probably shouldn't have been in the country and put them in the team as well. And it was fantastic. Um, we, we dominated locally. Um, I was a player coach, and I, I think I was the only person to be player coach uh, and win the Open Cup uh, in the Open Age Group. Uh, I also did the same for the over 30s, but when we got to Indianapolis, they wouldn't let me play in both finals. So I coached the over 30s. I don't know why. They coached the over 30s, and I played and coached in the Open Age Group. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, was, it, was, um, it was a really good team full of guys that just wanted to play at a high level because they had nowhere else to play at that particular time, which is, you know, credit to them. And also we had a good supporting uh, financial platform with uh, Andy and the Britannia Arms. That helps. That's, this is great. Um, and so now I'm curious, what's your, um, what's your role or what, what is, was, I mean, I know it's changed a bit with the MLS San Jose earthquakes. I know you work with Comcast, you do some stuff with Apple. How are you connected to the game today? Yeah, so I mean, I, when the when the uh, when the clash sort of became the earthquakes again, I was doing radio, and then they asked me to do TV back probably about eight, I don't know, fifteen years ago then, and then I went back onto radio. Then for the last twelve years or so, I've been doing the TV on the local TV broadcast. So it's you know NBC Sports Network in California. Um, that all changed at the start of this season when Apple TV came in with the deal for the league. Um, and uh, I, I did not get chosen to be part of that group, uh, which, you know, uh, I think, obviously, I'd like to be part of that group. I was enjoying doing the games with the earthquakes. Uh, it's it nice to be connected in that fashion, but I wasn't chosen. So we'll uh, move on from that one. Uh, I do do a lot of work locally for the club still. Um, we have to throw content up on the Apple season pass. And so we always we have a show each week where we talk about the previous game, look forward to the next game. And, and the Earthquakes have me do other local sort of work for them in some capacities. But um, that's really a sort of a part-time, nice to be connected with the, with the game in some capacity thing right now. And... Um, uh, I have my other businesses that I do as well. That's great. Uh, so I'm glad you're involved. And I know the Apple TV deal for Major League Soccer is going to be 
you know, time will tell. It seems like it's going to be a good thing for stability for this league and building the game at the same time. You know, I feel personally, I feel like we've all lost a little bit of a local connection uh, in this transition. Um, but I'm I'm happy that you are involved and still being able to participate as someone who I think represents San Jose, um, and, and very importantly. I, I would tend to agree with you, Billy, because uh, I think that um, sometimes somebody who may be based out of St. Louis or whatever has no idea of the history of a team like the Earthquakes. The Earthquakes have been around since 1974. Tim has been around since 1975. You know, there's times when you can drag yourself back into your memory banks and you can come up with something that the fans would appreciate from doing some kind of comparison between the team from this year and the team from that year or some memories that you may have. And some of mine, yeah, they're crazy because you think about, you know, people being blown up at the halfway line. But um, it, it's, it, it's, I think that's a very important part of it. But after saying that, it, you know, it's a massive partner for Major League Soccer. I think the fans probably would appreciate it in the longer term. Uh, I think the fact that you know where you can watch a team, your team play uh, at a certain time, you know what channel it's on. Um, you know, sometimes here locally, it was a challenge to find an earthquake game on NBC Sports California Plus Plus Plus. You know, you didn't know where they were, and so I think it's the right thing for the league in the long term. I just, you know, would have liked to have been part of it, but there you go. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned this that the, the team San Jose started in 1974. Uh, Seattle, Vancouver also started in 1974, which means. 2024 is their 50th anniversary um, in Portland in 2025 because it started in 1975. Do you feel a sense of pride in having built that? And I include definitely include Vancouver and Seattle in that because I think in this region, um, you know, we're all in it together. Those four teams are definitely pioneers with the NASL. Um, so do you have a sense of pride in having that these clubs that are going to get 50 years, half a century of soccer in America is, is a pretty big deal. Um, and then what, what do you think a club can do to embrace a moment like a 50th anniversary? Well, all those clubs are joined at the hip, aren't they? I mean, even when the NASL was not around and there was things like the Western Soccer League or Western Soccer Alliance, whatever that was called, you know, those teams were still playing. I mean, Vancouver, Seattle, I think there was uh, one point, the San Diego, Los Angeles, the Aztecs, uh, there was one in, what's that other place? Victoria had a team, I think, at one point as well. So, yeah, I mean, the, all those guys, fantastic history. It's wonderful that all of those areas have been uh, able to support so many original and ex-players or players that are a big part of their history and the, the job those guys have to integrate themselves into the local community and grow the sport, not only with the appearances they did when they were playing, but now. You know, uh, in your area, you know, John Bain doing Western Soccer Club, uh, the, you know, the, the, the coaching in the local leagues and Gantt and everybody else doing those things locally, um, doing a fantastic job with that. Uh, I think just acknowledging those players is, is a massive first step. Some clubs will do it more than others. Here next year uh, with the Earthquakes, they're bringing back as many people as they possibly can. They can connect with. Um, if you play for the club, you'll be invited back. Um, they they will make sure that you be, you're taken care of. Um, some of those players are better than others in getting involved with 
the fans and the appreciation side of that. And I'm sure there will be opportunities for the fans to, to spend time with them, whether it's a, a you know a, a formal event or whether it's a golfing event, et cetera. All those things have been spoken about and they'll be part of that. Um, it's just, well, as you say, it's a magnificent achievement to get to 50 years. And fortunately for a player like me that's had so many clubs, I'll be doing one of these for the next five years. Right, you'll be busy. Well, that's that's fantastic. And uh, Chris, I want to say thank you for taking the time and letting me ask these questions um, and sharing your stories with with the people who are going to listen to this. Because I think um, I think it's it's like you just talked about. This is a further service to the game to to share the story. And I appreciate it. And I want to say thank you for your time. Well, I appreciate being involved, Billy, and thanks for thinking of me. And good luck with the rest of the podcast. It's it's a wonderful uh, program you're putting together, and um, I hope the fans appreciate everybody that gets a chance to give their stories just like I have. Fantastic. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Billy. You ain't got to be 200 pounds, a giant at 7'3", to play this game called soccer, which is growing rapidly. You can hear it on the radio, you will see it on TV, but when the Portland boys appear, you will hear them sing with glee. Green is the colour, soccer is the game, we're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim, so let's be 